Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. John chapter 6, verses 1 and following. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he, had already, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Heavenly Father, let us marvel and be amazed at this miracle, how Jesus provided for the daily bread of these uh, people who came to seek him. Father, help us be aware of their sin and how they sought him for the wrong thing and draw us to focus on what Jesus provides for us eternally. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. How many of you, since last week, have had a a meal to eat? Something to eat since last week? Anybody? How many of you had a meal that was better than all the barley loaves you wanted? That was the cheapest form of bread in the day. And pickled fish. How many of you had a better meal than that? Right? Really, all of us. How many of you were amazed and wondered and were thankful at how God provided for your daily bread? Hmm. We, it is right and it is our custom, our habit to give thanks before we eat. But we begin to take it for granted, don't we? And we begin to come to worship and seek Jesus for the things that he can do to meet our daily needs. And we raise the standard of the life that we want to have. And if somehow God doesn't provide for it, we become frustrated with God. We become disillusioned and we're not thankful for the blessings he gives us. We're frustrated with him for the things we want that we don't get. Hmm. For those of you who are accustomed to uh, appreciating, I don't know how many of, that, of you that is, the outlines that I worked to put out in the bulletin, you'll notice this time I didn't put an outline. 
This is a story, and as I kept trying to fit it into an outline, it seemed to diminish the dynamic of the story itself. So what we're going to do this morning is work through this passage and let the story speak for itself. But there are three threads in the Gospel of John that I want to point out that John is constantly weaving together over and over. The first thread is Jesus' claims. The second is our daily need in this material world. And the third is that our eternal need in the spiritual realm. Jesus claims our daily need, the material world, our eternal need, the spiritual world. And John weaves these together over and over again. He states the purpose in writing this book. He says that you may believe These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, as Jesus claimed, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the eternal result, the eternal life. John 3.16, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. In John's own description of why he wrote this gospel, he leaves out that middle thread, our daily need, In the physical world, for uh, material things, Jesus enters into our material world and he meets us there time and time again, but he doesn't want us to worship him for just the material daily here and now blessings. He reveals himself to us through them and then calls us to the deeper, the everlasting, not just the daily, but the eternal Those are the themes that John weaves together over and over. And John chapter 1 is who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen him, the only begotten Son of God. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Chapter 2, he meets a daily material need at the wedding at Cana when they run out, and he provides by changing water into wine in a miraculous way. And his disciples notice this, and they believe in him. The people at the wedding just take it for granted. They think that the host has brought out the best wine last. That they're mystified by that, but uh, they, they don't really know that it's Jesus behind it all. Uh, then we find Jesus cleansing the temple, raising the need to, we need to be, Uh, And we need to not take God for granted. He came to cleanse us by his sacrifice on the cross. And he points at that early place in John to his own resurrection. That his body is the temple. He'll raise it up on the third day. In chapter 3, he addresses Nicodemus over the eternal need. Nicodemus is a a Pharisee, a teacher of the law. He says, uh, he, he comes and says, I know that you're from God. Nobody can do the things that you do. Jesus says, cutting to the quick, you must be born again. So begin to see the rhythm from the wedding, the daily miracle to the eternal need. In John uh, chapter 4, we find uh, Jesus meeting the woman at the well. And he says, give me a drink. And he he said, have a bucket and uh, nothing to draw water with. He has an eternal purpose in addressing her. And she's amazed. And she uh, says, you speak to me? He says, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, you'd have asked me for water. 
You'd ask me for living water that would satisfy forever. She keeps thinking about the material, the here and now. And she says, you don't have a bucket to draw with. How can I ask you for water? He says, oh, just ask me. And now you'll never thirst again. She says, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming to this well. We keep thinking like the woman in the daily material physical world saying, God, demonstrate your power, your presence with us, taking care of our daily bread. Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread, but that's not the ultimate. He doesn't want us to worship our daily bread. We depend on him for our daily bread, but he calls us to seek the eternal. In the last chapter, in chapter 5, Jesus said to the man by the pool, do you want to get well? Referring to the physical illness? Of course he did, but he said, I can't. Nobody's here to help me get in the pool. Based on the superstition that the first one in the pool, when the water moved, would be healed. And Jesus uh, just said, get up your, pick up your mat and walk. At a Needle's Eye pastor's lunch, it's kind of a pastor's council for those of us that have been around for, for a while. We've got about 20, 25 of us that have started meeting with Needle's Eye a couple of times a year. And just recently, I, you know, we, we went around and introduced ourselves. I knew many of the pastors, but what was interesting is that the number 38 kept coming up. I said that you know, I am retiring this summer after 38 years at Sycamore. Somebody else said, I've been in my ministry for 38 years. Somebody else said, I've retired, but it was 38 years when I retired. And we began to kind of chuckle about it. And I said, I've got the scripture passage that you really should retire in 38 years. Because Jesus said to the invalid who had been lying by that pool for 38 years, he said, pick up your mat, your mat and take a hike. Sort of. Not what Jesus meant. But then he comes back and finds the man later. And he speaks to the spiritual need. He says, stop sinning. He didn't explain how the man could do that. He didn't uh, explain to him what he would do on the cross so that he could be forgiven his sins. He just raised the standard so high the man should have said, just like he did over the physical illness, I can't. I need you to save me. You see, Jesus addresses us in our daily bread needs to demonstrate his presence. But he's interested in demonstrating his presence to us, not for just the daily need, but for the eternal focus. In fact, one of the reasons I had a hard time getting an outline of just this passage is that this message cannot be confined to the first 15 verses of chapter 6. Lest we conclude, all we need to do is trust in Jesus. He'll always provide for the daily need that we want. When later in the the same chapter, the crowds find Jesus again, and he doesn't feed them. Let me ask you this. You have a circumstance in your life where you've been praying to God, and he hasn't been answering the way he wanted. You sought after him as the crowds did because they were convinced he had the miraculous power to do whatever he wanted. He healed the sick. He gave them bread. And when they found Jesus, he said, don't work for the food that spoils, but look to the bread that gives eternal life. 
We're going to get there. Today we're going to look at how Jesus does care for our daily needs. But he calls us not to worship him only for the daily needs. Okay, let's work our way through the passage. Chapter 6, verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. Here in this little detail, we get something of the authenticity of this gospel. There's uh, John in his uh, early days when he was the youngest disciples with Jesus did a lot by the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had a, a ministry up in Galilee and then he'd come down to Jerusalem. He'd go back and forth. And so uh, in those early days, the Sea of Galilee was known as the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't until later that it became re- known as the Sea of Tiberias. When John wrote his gospel later, he wanted to make sure that the, his readers would understand what, what place it was. He said, uh, the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. Just in that little reflection, we know that John is writing with a real historical place. This is not a legend that's later imposed and uh, glorified the way uh, many uh, mythologies develop. This is history. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Here we begin to catch a theme that Jesus knows he's popular because he's doing what they maybe consider, I'm overstating a little bit, magic tricks. They're fascinated by the signs. But those signs and wonders, those miracles are fixing their here and now needs. He's healing the sick. He knows that's why they're seeking him. The Gospel of John is not the only gospel to record the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, this is the only miracle aside from the resurrection of Jesus that is presented in all four of the gospels. And we can learn from the other gospels details that we don't know in John. They all complement each other. We know that uh, in the other Gospels, Jesus did feed the crowds twice. In Matthew and Mark, he fed the 5,000, and then he fed 4,000. The details are different. John chooses not to record both because his emphasis is on the claim of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus. He spends more time on the last week uh, of Jesus, what he taught to the final discourse in John chapters 13 uh, through 20. John spends more time on that, so he leaves out some details that others do, but he's not doing that in a contradictory way. He just kind of compresses them uh, together. Back in Mark, we find uh, after the feeding of the 4,000, after both miracles, something that should connect with us in the way we pray. After Jesus had fed 5,000, after he had fed 4,000, after he'd done all sorts of other wondrous signs and miracles, the Pharisees come to Jesus in chapter 8 of Mark, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. Stop and think about that. They'd seen his miracles. They had seen the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. They still come and saying, prove yourself to us. Here's where we need to stop and ask, how do we pray? What do we pray for? Yes, we're to be persevering in prayer. We're to be persevering in prayer over, give us this day our daily bread. But if that's all we worship God for, are we approaching him 
for his signs and wonders. Fix this problem in the here and now in my life. John wrote this, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and to look to him for eternal life. The here and now is just the demonstration that he can deliver on the eternal promise. That's the whole theme of the Gospel of John. In Mark, we find Jesus' response to this. And it says the Pharisees test him. They ask him for a sign from heaven. It says in verse 12, he sighed deeply. Did you ever notice that before? I wonder how often Jesus sighs deeply, patiently, graciously, in the way we approach him in prayers. If we're saying, Lord, prove yourself to us. Oh, I know you came. I know you died on the cross to pay for my sins. I know you rose from the dead. I hear all of that at church, but you seem to be silent. You're not answering my prayer the way I want it. And your faith is genuine. It's real. It's true. But you're kind of falling into that mode. I wonder if we could see in heaven, Jesus, let me help you look to me and not miss out on the joy of what I have purchased for you by my life, death, and resurrection. I don't want you to worship that fallen world. I don't want you to find your belonging there. You're citizens of heaven, and I've prepared a place for you. You're coming to be with me in glory. I'm coming back to get you. Have that hope. Have that joy. Even if you're at the stage of John chapter 6 where he doesn't feed them, he doesn't answer that prayer the way you want, be persevering in prayer, but always add to it with faith. But God, you know best. You know everything. I only know this much. And this is my request. But you know best. So I want your will, not mine. And every day you can come to him with that prayer. Trusting him, knowing that in the end, he is taking you where every problem is fixed. Every disease is healed. Every provision is made. And you will live with him in glory forever. Let's not make Jesus sigh in our prayers. Let's not weary him in that way, but let's carry every day, give us this day our daily bread. But I trust you. Thank you for what you've already done. So uh, the crowds uh, came to him. Uh, They were looking for miraculous signs. Uh, In verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain and sat down with his disciples the Jewish Passover feast was near. In the other Gospels, it says Jesus withdrew to the mountainside with his disciples because of the crowds. They were pressing on just the material things. We begin to see something in this theme. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. They wanted a miracle worker to fix everything in here and now terms. And that's connected with why Jesus mentions the Passover feast. The Jewish Passover feast was near. The Passover is the feast that celebrates the Exodus when the the slaves were brought out of Egypt. And you know that story. uh, In the last of the the plagues, the angel of death passed over the land and the the house of Israel and all the uh, other, the mixed multitude, the Egyptians too, who believed in the God of Israel. They sacrificed the Passover lamb and put the the blood on the doorposts. And the angel passed over where there was sacrifice made. And that was a picture of Christ, who would be the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. That's the Passover. But we forget this part of the Passover. 
It was the beginning, the founding of the nation of Israel. This was a patriotic feast. The closest we have to it today is the 4th of July. Fireworks, celebration for the founding of our, our nation. And we thank God for it and praise God for it. This was a patriotic time. So for John to mention the Jewish Passover feast was near. It wasn't on the feast. This is in the middle of Jesus' ministry. The first Passover feast, he was in Jerusalem. He cleansed the temple. Uh, Jesus is, part, you know, is, at least, is, is halfway through his ministry, roughly speaking. And uh, they've seen lots of signs and wonders. And they want to make him king. You see the connection with the Independence Day, the founding of the nation. We're under Rome now. You're going to fix it for us because if you can do these miraculous signs and wonders, what a king you would be and you'd take care of all of our daily needs. That's what he knows is in their hearts. When you saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy, buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. If you read in the other Gospels, the disciples brought the concern to Jesus and said, send everybody home. We don't have, we're out in the wilderness. They're going to get hungry. We don't have uh, food to eat. Send them home. That's not a contradiction here. I believe that the disciples brought that need to Jesus. But John is more focused on Jesus' claims than the disciples' initiative. His response to their concern, send them home, was, you give them something to eat. You take care of it. And he says to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people? Why do you ask Philip? Well, Philip was from that region. He would have known the local bread shops and stores. It's a very practical, realistic uh, uh, part of the gospel. Philip answered him, eight months wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, Spoke up, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two fish, but how far will they go among so many? I think we need to be careful about sentimentalizing this, that uh, there was already faith on Andrew's part or the young boy's part. The point here is in line with what Philip said, there's no way we could ever have enough. This is all we got. Five little loaves and two small fish. They are helpless to meet the need. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Why are they counted by men? Well, it's in, there's some custom in counting crowds of counting family units. And so count the men. It's probably 15,000, 20,000 people when you count all the, the whole families. But perhaps even more than that, the pointing out of the 5,000 men, that's often the reference to your army strength 5,000 men you're fighting men it's near independence day and they want him to be king and they have 5,000 that they can rise up with him to fight against Rome it's pointing to their strength I don't think that's an illegitimate inference that uh, the first second first century uh, Israelites would have been thinking that and notice the 5,000 men is we're pretty strong if, you, if we have a leader that can do miracles, let's rise up and fight. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Oh, there's something really interesting and profound here. 
This is not a contradiction with the other Gospels. The other Gospels say that Jesus broke bread and gave it to his disciples and told them to distribute the food. If you make it a contradiction, well, did Jesus distribute the food himself or did the disciples distribute it? Jesus distributed the food through the disciples. Imagine that you were in the crowd and the disciples came with the the basket uh, of bread and the, the fish and you were taking from it and you don't quite know where it's all coming from except that there's something astounding going on here. If you thought that, well, the disciples brought it to me, this, this isn't a miracle. Jesus isn't doing it. It's just ordinary food. You'd be missing out on apprehension of the miracle. But if you thought when the disciples brought that basket to you, Jesus is providing this for me. And he's doing it in a miraculous and marvelous way. You'd appreciate Jesus for that. Now I go back to the kinds of meals you've had this week. We see ordinary means. God is distributing daily bread to us through ordinary means. We have jobs. We can go to the grocery store. We can find food. We cook it. We bake it. Just because it's an ordinary means, how often do we miss? It's Jesus that's distributing to us our daily bread. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, are we in our heart of hearts thinking, i got a good job, I can take care of myself. Or it's, thank you, God, for every blessing you have, that you have given us. If it comes through ordinary means, I know you're behind it. And I praise you for it. That doesn't just apply to daily bread. That represents all of our physical needs. When the doctor has something that uh, is effective in treating your illness, do you just thank the doctor or do you thank God? You thank both. You know, it's really fun to go to the hospital and with, sometimes with the doctor present, I don't know whether or not he's a Christian. Often, sometimes I know he's not a Christian. But to pray with the patient and say, God, thank you for giving the gifts to the doctors that you've given to them today. We pray your blessing on uh, the doctor as he administers these healing gifts. And we praise you as the source of them all. That's the way we pray. Don't mistake, just because you have ordinary distribution, that God's not behind it all. Praise him for it. John just brings that out. He says, Jesus distributed the food. He's the ultimate. He's the source. He doesn't even mention the ordinary means by which he does it. When all the disciples, verse 12, when uh, when they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now, in the early service, I made this point and have learned since then, because I was reading Matthew as the representative of the synoptic gospels and you know, comparing uh, the two. I said, John only mentions that they gathered five barley loaves. What happened to the fish? And I made the remark in the early service that was really cute. You know, nobody wants leftover fish. Fish are like company. You know, you know that saying, fish are like company after three days? They begin to stink. Yeah. Bad joke if you're staying with your family for longer than that. So I said that, and then I happened to notice as I was just kind of still meditating on things. Instead of turning to Matthew, I turned to Mark. Mark says that the baskets were leftover pieces of the loaves and the fish. 
John made a mistake in the early service. The fish were there too. It was dried, pickled fish, suitable for carrying out into a desert place that wouldn't spoil without refrigeration. We've all had better meals than barley loaves, which were the cheapest bread of the day, and the, the pickled fish. We probably all snub our nose at that meal, even though it was miraculously given. But you know, if you live at a time where survival is at issue, you appreciate having your fill. Don't worry about tomorrow. God knows what we need. He knows what we need. doesn't say he'll give us everything we want, but he knows what we need, and he takes care of his people. Do you know that? Well, they gather the uh, baskets, and we see the abundance of the miracle, that they're 12 basketfuls. So he gives the disciples the bread and the fish. They take it out in 12 pieces, and by the miracle, it just multiplies and feeds everybody. They go back around, and their baskets are full of the leftovers. Here's what's really interesting. It says, gather the pieces that are left. Let nothing be wasted. Really? This is Jesus who can do the miracle. If he can do the miracle, who cares for leftovers? And yet Jesus is teaching us stewardship. 500 years ago, John Calvin would have been 11 years old, exactly 500 years ago. I looked up his birthday. It was 1509. And he anticipates, because he knows human nature and he knows God and he knows his word, how we uh, can handle uh, abundance. He says about this, he says, We also ought to observe in passing that though Christ commands them to fill the baskets for illustrating the miracle, yet he likewise exhorts his disciples to frugality when he says, Gather the fragments that are left that nothing may be lost. For the increase of the bounty of God ought not to be an excitement to luxury. Let those, therefore, who have an abundance remember that they will one day render an account of their immoderate wealth, their abundant wealth, if they do not carefully and faithfully apply their superfluity to purposes which are good and of which God approves. I think that speaks to all of us. God reminds us of our stewardship of his blessings, even through ordinary means. It's kind of remarkable that Jesus, that from the beginning created everything from nothing, here multiplied five loaves into two fishes enough to satisfy everybody, didn't say, hey, rest on the miracle and just, you know, just waste it all. Be stewards. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over those who had been eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you see God's hand behind every provision for you, and when you have suffering, when you're anxious, you pray, as Philippians tells us, as Paul tells us in his letter to the Philippians, he says, don't just sit there and be anxious. That's what it means, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. 
Let's see God's hand behind the things he has provided us with. In Calvin's commentary that I read to you from, I pulled it out this time. I have so many computer things that often don't pull books off the shelf. For some reason, this time I did just to, to see uh, what Calvin's saying in the book. And I found a letter in here that was from the first building committee of Sycamore in 1987 to the congregation. I don't know if our projectors are, are fixed. Ah, oh, they are. Oh, that one is. This is the letter. That's the picture of this building when it was being built. This is the letter. Dear members and friends, as we mentioned in the bulletin this week, this is an exciting time for our building program. The foundation is laid, the floor is poured, and now the walls are going up. We hope to have the building under roof by Christmas. This was written in December 9th, 1987. At this time of the year, as we are focusing on God's gift of his son to us, we can also be thankful for the gift of the land, the building, and the resources to finance them. That we would be within four months of moving into our own building is evidence of his miraculous generosity. However, the task is not yet completed. We need to raise an additional $100,000 to be able to move into a completed building. And from the size and resources of our congregations, then I think we, I, I didn't do the math, just say we need to raise an additional, additional million dollars. Or astounding, out in the Golan Heights, in the desert, we don't have enough provision for this, but God provided. He didn't do it in a miraculous way, uh, in the sense of walking on water. We'll get to that next week. He did it through ordinary means, but he moved in the hearts of God's people to do it. Do you, we take this for granted. I read this letter and I thought, oh, how much we have taken this for granted. And it's just like the story in the bread. And we seek God for his daily provisions and we forget what he's done for us before. He does all of this so that we would come to worship him, not in that health and wealth gospel. Meet my, my need today. This is what I want. Name it and claim it. He does it so that we may know that Jesus is the Christ and trust in him, believing in him. That leads to eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to recognize your hand at work in all provisions of life, but that we wouldn't worship the here and now provisions. We wouldn't seek you only for them. We wouldn't make you prove yourself over and over now that you have proven yourself by Jesus' work on the cross, demonstrating your profound love for us and opening the doors of heaven for us through him. We do thank you that you know what you need, what we need. And we do thank you that we can pray for our daily bread. And we do thank you for taking care of us. We pray that that thanksgiving would overflow into an eternal focus of worship and praise for you, our God and our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.